You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Welcome to Season 1 of Another Name for Everything, Conversations with Richard Rohr, exploring the core themes of his new book, The Universal Christ. As mentioned previously, this podcast is recorded on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation and may contain the quirky sounds of our neighborhood and setting. We're your hosts, Paul Swanson and Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst piles of laundry, pleasing the mother-in-law, and the shifting state of our world. This is the sixth of 12 weekly episodes. Today, we will be discussing chapters 10 and 11, titled The Feminine Incarnation and This Is My Body. In this conversation, we explore Richard's ideas of creation as the first feminine incarnation of Christ, Mary, Jesus' mother, as an archetype of that incarnation, and the messy, fleshy reality of being human. A quick note, in this episode, Richard references the colors of spiral dynamics. You may already know this, but just in case, spiral dynamics is a system of categorizing human development and charting psychological and social behavior in evolution. Let's get started. So Richard, in chapter nine of the Universal Christ, you kick us off by letting the world know that you were your mother's favorite <laughs> child. Yes. I'm curious, how did you know that? And how did your brothers and sisters respond to you being the favorite child? How did I know that? You know, my first memory uh, is recognizing that I could expect my mother's eyes to light up when I entered the room. She was just always excited about what I wanted to do and and so forth. Uh, I do think it was harder for my older sister who obviously was the first child, had all. And in fact, she zoned this in her later years. She was pretty hard on me, my older sister, because I came in and took away her being the only child. And we were around five years before the other ones came. And then I was clearly mom's favorite. So I think it was very hard for my dear older sister. Uh, and, you know, I don't hold any grudges, but she'd push me off the bike. And <laughs> oh, my gosh. <laughs> she would, yeah. Uh-huh. Subtle. <laughs> uh, she would, there would be a dog coming, and she'd get behind me and push me toward the dog. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if she's an eight or what, but, uh, <laughs> but all that's forgiven and forgotten. And, but the younger two, of course, they're both nines. Uh, my, both my younger siblings are nines. And they could care less. They just always would sort of joke about it. You know, well, here comes mother's favorite. I'd say, stop it, you know. And she'd say, stop it, you know. But they just saw it clearly that uh, she preferred me. Mm-hmm. And again, I can only recognize the gift of that that I really got good mirroring. And I think that's why I talk about mirroring so much. That's a gift that just has nothing to do with you. Mm -hmm. 
you know, I'm sure you're both giving it to your kids, but that looking in their eyes and being delighted in them, their mirror neurons are receiving that message. So I would say I was, I was made to order to believe the gospel, mm. <laughs> to be mirrored by God as special. Yeah. As we talk about your experience with your mother, um, I want to transition into a really incredibly revolutionary, at least for me, theme of your book, which is the feminine incarnation. Mm. And uh, obviously very healing to hear you describe uh, the incarnation through a feminine lens because for so many of us women, we feel like we're kind of on the outside of of our tradition and made to feel like, well, you all caused this giant problem because of Eve. Um, (laughs) So much suspicion and exclusion over the centuries, over the millenniums that, um, yeah, I wonder if you could share with us what you mean by the feminine incarnation. Do I have an hour? (laughs) (laughs) Actually, yes. (laughs) Let me just say a few hopefully helpful things. You know, for me, this, I remember early in my preaching, in fact, it was at a retreat in Latin America with lay missionaries, and they were very feminist uh, lay missionaries. And one just said to me outrightly, I will not believe in Christianity till there is a feminine incarnation, till there's a Christa, a balancing Christus, you know. Uh, But once you make the distinction that I'm trying to make in the whole book, that the first incarnation was Christ, and Christ has no gender, (laughs) in a certain way the problem is solved. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I do agree that Jesus came the scandal of particularity in a male body. We can't deny that. But the fact that he had such a feminine soul was by no Jewish definition was Jesus a patriarch. Mm-hmm. He just wasn't. He acted in very feminine, nurturing, touching, healing, relational ways. Never bought the domination system. So at any rate, once we can accept that the first incarnation was was Christ, creation, from the beginning of time, then we naturally are going to look for, well, how did that express itself in a feminine way? Now, the readings we find in Proverbs and and the Old, Old Testament and the Book of Wisdom, which I don't think is in the Protestant Bible, are these beautiful passages about Sophia, And without any question, they always use a feminine pronoun to what's clearly the divine. Now, you can tell this just an intuition uh, in a very patriarchal Judaism that they call the divine holy wisdom. And it's almost always a a feminine word. Is it sabiduria in Spanish? Is that sabiduria? Mm -hmm. Is that feminine? Mm Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, and almost always is. But then, here's my leap and why I said, I know for many people it's my most edgy chapter, but I'm convinced of it. That actually, as a Catholic, I do find it a bit embarrassing when I go to Europe and just see Nuestra Señora everywhere. Well, you mm-hmm. talked yesterday about yeah. carrying out the statue. Uh, you know, Our Lady, Notre Dame, Notre Dame, Notre Dame. 
and uh, that that really she was the feminine goddess of Europe. There's no doubt about it. It's just, she's everywhere. And because Catholics weren't that trained in the scriptures, we didn't see any problem with it. Even though Mary of Nazareth is mentioned very few times in the New Testament, you know. So uh, thank God again for Carl Jung, giving us this word archetype. And saying that archetypes are not logical or rational, they proceed from the collective unconscious, and they fascinate. They fascinate. And there, there's no doubt, I watch Catholics in processions. Their eyes are all on Mary, you know. She's just what you were watching from your window in Madrid. This is an archetypal fascination mm-hmm. with Mother Madrecita, Mm -hmm. uh, where most people, not all, but most people first experience tenderness, nurturing, safety, unconditional love. We now know that the first months, they they think they're the same as their mother. And your little baby, Paul, is probably still at that stage. That's right. Yeah, that he's not sure... you're even around yet. I'm t- <laughs> I get a lot fewer smiles, just a lot of wide eyes. And who's uh-huh. this guy? Yeah. yeah, isn't that interesting? And the day when he recognizes, who's this other person in the house <laughs> besides me and mom? And then when you, which you'll have no trouble doing, when you will choose him, that's the first experience of election. So I'm just trying to, some will say, psychologize. Uh, And you hear me say in the book, I know this Catholic approach and Orthodox are just as bad or just as good, however you want to say it, just icons of Mary Mm -hmm. everywhere, all over Greece and Turkey. Uh, It it might be bad theology, but it's brilliant psychology. Mm -hmm. And uh, I keep saying we need a good anthropology to match a good theology. So that was our attempt to to see the feminine face of God. And so we painted nonstop this beautiful Mary. <laughs> and normally the ones I grew up with, she always had her arms out like this, mm-hmm. totally ready to receive the running child. To, who of us didn't have that as a child? Mm-hmm. And we got it from our mother too. I mean, our father too. So um, yeah, I think for those who are ready for it, it'll be one of the most exciting chapters in the book, mm-hmm. especially for Protestants, well, even Catholics, who never understood we're dealing with an archetype. Yeah. Something that is true on about 10 levels. Yeah, it's interesting for me, having grown up in that Protestant realm, where there just weren't that many feminine no. archetypes to look to in yeah. Christianity. And even the ones that were offered, I have to say, you know, I hate how Mary is so typically portrayed. She's so meek and nice and sweet. But we're dealing with an actual badass. I mean, this woman mm-hmm. had courage no. when you think about what her yes signifies mm. in the face of all the cultural norms, what she was consenting to. Yes. And the power of that is just, it's remarkable. Mm. And so... um I want to kind of hear from you. What a little more? What do you think an embodied path uh, of of that kind of Mary archetype would look like in Christianity? What does it look like for us to have that courage to say yes 
or to carry Christ within with all that it means. You know, I if I can call Mary just to give a new word to the she's a holding operation. Uh, 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 she held these things in her heart. It said twice, I think, maybe three, two, two at least in Luke's gospel. And then this image at the end of Stan and beneath the cross stood Mary, uh, his mother, and, and other Marys. Remember, all the Marys are the, the same divine feminine, really. Uh, but if you know, here's again where a little anthropological study is helpful. I just read this some years ago that a woman had a formal role in the whole Mediterranean world. In the presence of death, she is to wail, fall on the ground, scream, <laughs> pound her fists against the enemy. Uh, and we see this even on news to this day, to protest death, to, you know, and that Mary is signify with such dignity she stood at the foot of the cross mm -hmm. so again she's a holding operation holding the opposites holding the contradictions holding what i called yesterday tragic realism mm -hmm. she allowed the tragic to uh be a part of the realism uh that's and you're absolutely right. No meek and mild Mary. Right. And if it's true, they think she would have been a 15-year-old girl. Yeah. When, yeah. As the story is told, when Gabriel tells her, you know, a 15-year-old girl to have that much presence, capacity. And, I, of course, we have to believe God chose her. Uh, so I, I'm sure God did choose a, a very fitting instrument, a woman who was whole already at that age. But just from the few texts that we know so much, uh, and you know, even the final scene of she's the only one mentioned at Pentecost that's a woman. Mm -hmm. It's a room filled with men and one woman. <laughs> that she could stand her own with the guys and could join them in the upper room, if that's a correct account of it. Again and again, we see a, a whole woman, a sturdy, strong woman. And I don't think that's a sentimental reading. I think it's implied, at least in the text. Mm -hmm. yeah. Richard, I wonder if you can go a little bit further with that. Yes, I'm curious how... Oh. What are the implications for us with Mary's yes? What can we learn from that as we look at our own place and say social location in the world today, how does someone say yes so boldly? And how does that empower the rest of their calling on the, or their days on this planet? Maybe what it does is absolutely affirm the importance of yes. Because as we see the human psyche and the human mind, it actually prefers no. <laughs> I mean, just observe human conversation. There's always, we start with resistance. We start with, well, I disagree with that. Uh, I don't think that's always true. Or, it's the way the ego defends itself and surrounds itself with boundaries is by starting with no. I've known people 
who will begin many of their conversations, and it's not even logical. They'll say, no. I don't think it, it, the, the first word out of their mouth is no. <laughs> I've known more than one that, uh, that way. It's, it reveals to me the nature of the psyche. Uh, I'm going to resist being drawn into anybody else's ideas, anybody else's force field, intimacy, no. Uh, and then there's always a redefining of the self. So Mary's yes is the ultimate attitude toward life. And you've heard me say, when people ask, how long should I pray? And I say, as long as it takes you to get to yes. Mm -hmm. And I would still agree with that. Because I got to admit, many days, today I was somewhere in between, but at morning prayer, I'm often inner world, I don't know if it's the dreams I had, but there's a no in me. Yeah. <laughs> it's just, oh God, another day. Got to go over and record with Bree and Paul. Oh man, <laughs> what, a, what a drag. Yeah. Uh, and I know if I, if I in any way play into that, I'm dead in the water for the rest of the day. If I, mm. if I don't get to yes, by the time I get over here or whatever. Mm. So I hope that's a way of seeing it that isn't too sanctimonious or Mary's grand yes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's the basic soul attitude that allows encounter, growth, change, and love. Mm. Mm. Yeah. It was a continual yes. It wasn't just yeah. one. Yes, very good. Just started the perpetual motion of, uh -huh. of future uh -huh. welcoming. Yeah, and isn't that so much the experience of being a parent? I mean, mm -hmm. don't you find, Paul, is that it is this constant having to say yes. Yes to being mm -hmm. not in control. To yes. Being irritated. By <laughs> oh, yes presence. to being interrupted, <laughs> interrupted. constantly, you know? <laughs> Um, there's this story that I've shared before of, of Jim Finley where I showed up at the living school and I'm just an exhausted mom, you know, I'm just tired and I'm trying to find space to, to do this contemplation thing. But I'm a young mom and I've got a 10-month-old, you know, and Did a you toddler. Did you bring your baby to the early classes? No. Uh, I never saw you with no, baby. No, no. Oh. He was 10 months old, but I was, I was literally pumping and dumping to keep my <laughs> breast milk supply up. So... All that to say that in the class, I remember asking Jim and saying, you know, Jim, it's great that everybody else has all this ample space for contemplation, but my kids are waking me up. Like, you know, and then and if I try to get up early and I'm trying to have a sit, they'll interrupt it. You know, it's like they have a radar. So he says, okay, Brie, okay, you be you and I'll be God. And he says, now, I love seeing you get up in the morning and you just want to be with me. And it moves me so much. I can't tell you what it means to me that I have to I have to rush into the bodies of your of your children and wake them up just so that I can know what it feels like to be held by you. Oh, oh. how does he do that? Huh? <laughs> but that brilliant, it's brilliant. that moment yeah. that helped me realize mm. that mm. everything coming at me as a mother is really just archetypal of everything that comes at us in life. Mm. These interruptions, the unexpected, the not being able to have our way, this feels to me like part of the ongoing yes that we're mm. being invited to say. That's lovely. Yeah. I couldn't say it half as well. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Bri. I love that story. Yeah. <laughs> um, Richard, you know, there's been a lot of uh, pain in the Catholic Church with the exclusion of women in leadership. 
And I'm curious regarding the divine incarnation as you lay it out in this work. Do you see it as a potential for laying a new sense of embodied feminine leadership in the future of the church, of the Catholic church? Or I'm just kind of wrestling with that as a sense of uh, the feminine incarnation and then how it's been, women have been excluded from leadership roles within the church. Mm. How do you see that potentially shifting in the future if this idea and way of being kind of takes hold? From my perspective, it has to happen. Now, how long it's going to take knowing that people who get promoted in the church, the reason they get promoted, at least in my mind, is they're blue loyalists. Mm. You know, mm. That's what makes most institutions conservative because the loyalists who follow the rules of the group tend to get promoted to higher office. You know, uh, And those who go into the orange level, the critical level, the so-called liberals, Uh, look like dangerous and so there's the level of the fight right now between the orange liberals and the blue loyalists until that's rearranged somehow probably by the force of history and again here's where I always trust God brings good out of evil I don't know if this pedophilia crisis won't contribute to that change this is just not working. Mm. Mm. This myth of celibacy and the boys club, when men get together, they remain immature. They just too. Mm. They create a culture of slap on the back, uh, side comments, uh, passive aggressiveness, all not very healthy things. So until that happens, and I, I hear this rightly, I do believe, although God bless the churches that are ordaining women, uh, but I do believe that if, at least in the Catholic Church, we ordain women right now, they would be put into a model that's patriarchal. (laughs) And maybe they bring a little sweet feminine energy to it, but it wouldn't be long, and I have seen this too in other churches, where you basically accept the culture that you're a part of. You like all the pomp and circumstance and adulation that priests get, which is now received in feminine form. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's okay. I don't know how many more years. I'd like to believe 20. I don't think it's going to be much quicker than that. But it's going to take a pope in our church. Uh, who's at the mystical level, at the yellow or turquoise levels, too, to have the courage to do it. Now, Pope Francis is at that level, but I think he's choosing his battles wisely, mm. and he's making his edge into married priests in certain parts of the world. The foot is in the door for married priests. That'll have to happen first. Once you have married priests... It won't. It, the next generation will be ready for women priests, mm-hmm. and will stop our fixation that men are the sacred figures. That's just my quick and naive analysis. Mm. It sounds like you're saying, though. I mean, it's structural yeah. in nature, and I, I appreciate your insight because I do think um, many of us as women are 
blind to or perhaps uh, swimming in the waters of, of patriarchy to the point where we don't see that we're actually being asked to step into a role of leadership as a, a male in a structurally male way. And so... That's what I was trying to say. I can't... You got it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How... It's hard to not have a little bit of a like. What would it look like? Yes, yes. Then of course. you know what would the what would this shift be toward a, I guess a, a holarchy as as Ken Wilber mm. describes it instead of a hierarchy. It's hard to imagine. Yeah, and that maybe the uh, Anglican Church and the Methodist Church, those many churches now have women ministers. They're all be already beginning to twist the Catholic archetype. Yeah. I remember when I first saw Susan Sager, who started St. Martin's. Uh, I attended her mass. Oh, this was in the early 90s. And it was a mass where they baptized a baby. And to see a woman baptizing a baby and then raising it up to God and holding it to her chest... I said, boy, this is pretty natural, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it works, it works. Uh, so we're going to have to see it for our imagination to be changed. And that's where you're right. You have to, some people are courageously going to have to push the envelope. Maybe they're rebels, maybe they're a little too aggressive, but someone's always got to do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that I'm all for them, mm-hmm. even though I can be pretty patient I mean, it would it would absolutely split the Catholic Church. Right. We would be two churches if he'd try it now. Even if he'd try married priests on a whole scale, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. Yeah, change takes so long with so any institution. And I just wanted to echo just my appreciation of taking a step back to see the structural issue at play in the Catholic yeah. Church as we look at other institutions as well, which yeah. is such a helpful way that you framed it of uh, bringing too big to fail to these institutions. Oh, yeah. It's kind of an indicator or signal that... Uh, Idolatry is at work. Yes, <laughs> yes. Now, does your covenant church have women? Yeah. Oh, I grew do. up uh, oh. with uh, female pastors, and my aunt was a pastor. So I just thought it was normal until I was about 20, and then I realized oh. that was not the case. <laughs> and how about the Baptists? No. Oh, no. No. <laughs> <laughs> Uh-uh. Uh-uh. You're as bad as us. Huh? No. In fact, I even remember at times discussions about whether or not we should take it literally that Paul said we shouldn't braid our hair. Wow. You know, that it. <laughs> I wow. mean, it was just. Wow. Yeah. Extreme. Extreme. I think I was five when I asked my dad that question. Really? I remember walking into his study. His study always had that, like, Oh, energy. You know, it was like you're walking into the Holy of Holies. With all the books. All the books and the, the carpet. And uh, so I remember walking in and asking him, I, I was five years old, why can't I be a pastor? Did you? Because I think in my mind it equated the closest I could be to God. Yes, yes. And I think he That's quoted scripture. That's why I became a priest. Yeah, yeah and he, I think he gave me some answers. <laughs> I even think I nodded and walked away. Yeah, but inside... I remember my heart, yeah, I remember my heart being like, no, this Mm. can't be right. This can't be right. Well, you're in good company. As you know, my favorite female saint, Therese of Lisieux, she wanted to be a priest already. Mm. And uh, the conservatives who love the little flower don't want to talk about that, that she (laughs) wanted to be a priest, little French girl. Mm. (laughs) It's interesting that you bring up the mystics, though, because I do think that that is part of 
what is so revolutionary about so many of our women mystics is oh, yeah. that in the face of so much um, silencing of women's voices, I mean, you've got mystics who marched right up to the Pope yeah. and yeah. gave a talking to, mm-hmm. you know, so I, I really appreciate that that's a part of our tradition and mm-hmm. was my own healing journey to discover that. And you know, it'll help you understand why in the Middle Ages so many women became nuns. Mm -hmm. The first step was to separate themselves from total reliance upon one man. I mean, that's not rebellious feminism. It's, I've got a life and I can live it without depending on a man. Mm -hmm. And they poured into convents Mm -hmm. to find their identity as individuals. So... Richard, to shift into one of the things that you describe in this chapter is the bodiliness and earthiness of the feminine incarnation, mm-hmm. and uh, which flies kind of in the face of the anesthetized cultural mm-hmm. uh, aversion of that time against blood and flesh, and uh, you know the kind of needed you know the Jewish need to segment that out and um, stay away from blood and sickness and bodiliness in a way and it's amazing that jesus emulates that in that last supper Mm -hmm. to say something so bodily like this is is my my flesh and this is (laughs) my blood what is so revolutionary about that in your mind you know the thing that human beings cannot deny although we we still have tried is that we live in this body our entire life. So if we don't deal with embodiment, our own physicality, if we don't somehow deeply say yes to it, our receiver station is destroyed. Do you understand? For the whole message of soul and spirit, uh, if the, the third element, usually the tripartite biblical person was body, soul, spirit, um, when you eliminate one-third of it by shaming it, which much of Christian preaching did, you know, told you, I hate to quote these Protestant reformers, but <laughs> Luther saying we'll we're a pile you. of manure, mm. you know, uh, Calvin saying we're totally depraved. Yeah. yeah. And Jonathan Edwards saying we're sinners in the hands of an angry God. The most famous American sermon ever published, I'm told. Wow. Sinners in the hands of an angry God. The, the, our embodiment has been so shamed. and uh, This is the only receiver station we have. Yeah. If this can't be part of the equation and also named as good. So as you read in the book, that's my conclusion why... Jesus took on an embodied symbol for the community ritual. Uh, And he didn't say, this is my spirit, this is my idea, this is my soul, this is my body. And then that he uses the harsher Greek word sarx, not soma. Soma would be, sarx is almost like we would use the word flesh. It has a little dirty connotation. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's the word he uses again and again in John's gospel. Unless you eat my flesh, my sarx, (laughs) my total embodied self. Um, 
I told that story years ago. I don't tell it much anymore. When I was a young priest in Cincinnati, and I was in the right in front of the front pews and giving out the body of Christ, body of Christ. A mother is holding a little one uh, on the front of the pew, and he's watching me so closely. And then the way kids talk loud sometimes, he, he turns to his mother and says, Does that mean Jesus bought him too? <laughs> <laughs> oh, the whole church of Christ. <laughs> He's, but how smart. Body of Christ. Mm. Yeah. Is that Jesus' bottom too? Yeah. He got it. Everything. Yeah. That's Everything. the shock of it. You know? mm, yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, we've got such a good incarnational religion. Mm -hmm. But if we would have seen the elemental as simply incarnation taken to its logical conclusion instead of fighting about transubstantiation or mm. transignification or transsymbolization, whatever it was. 500 years we wasted on that instead of recognizing bodily presence to bodily presence. Yeah. Maybe it's because of the sexual connotations of that. Oh, yeah. of course. <laughs> <Yeah>. The almost <laughs> cannibalistic connotations that eat my body. Oh my God, <laughs> what are we talking about in church, in church? Thank you for asking me. Oh, but it's so, it's so refreshing. I mean, I it, know, I know. I think um, that mind-body split runs mm -hmm. through our entire culture, oh, yeah. but especially oh. in, our, in our faith tradition, which is, it's so sad because we're supposed to be about incarnation and yet we're not, we're not. incarnate no, no, no. at all. We've been an ascending religion trying to get to heaven trying to get out of our bodies. Yeah. Not yeah. whereas Jesus modeled a descending religion into yeah. the flesh. And how little yeah. space we give ourselves to permit bodiliness as a way of knowing God. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think about right. um there's a time when I came to your office in tears and I was Did sharing you? with you the, my, an experience of falling in love oh, okay. and just how it was rocking my world and mm. I hadn't experienced anything at that complete overwhelmed level. And you said to me, What did I say? You said, it's as if you have your whole life had an interior knowingness of God, oh. but that this is the moment when you're experiencing God at a cellular, a cellular level. level. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad I said that. <laughs> I am. You're pretty good sometimes, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Until it gets embodied, it isn't you yet. Mm. It's just, as we say, a head trip. And head trips don't convert people. Mm. No, they just make you opinionated. That's all. So as I imagine that, what would it be like for us to actually live this out in a way that encouraged us to ask that question. Where am I experiencing God at a cellular level? Where do I feel the oxygen, you know? And am I following the oxygen? Am I following mm. that, that yearning, that longing? Mm. Am, I, am I even, dare I say, able to trust that mm. as God? Uh, that feels very different from... Very different, yeah, yeah than almost any of us were, were allowed to think. You've seen that much photographed uh, statue that's in Rome of Teresa of Avila in ecstasy. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Where the Cupid, I mean, it's clearly phallic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Is shooting the dart into, and oh, my God, what a piece of sculpture. Yeah. yeah. It just embodied, 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 embodied. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, it's so often pictured in books, which shows how it's striking people. Mm. Because we, we were used to these sanctimonious pictures of folded hands, 
you know, looking up to the heavens, uh, never showing breasts. Or desire. Yeah, or desire. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I mean, it's because we've somewhat vilified desire, longing, yearning, the physicality of being human, the messiness, the complexity. Mm. And yet there it is. Yes. And there is God in it as as this expression of life and anyway it's i remember in italy spain and france uh how do you say mary of the milk leche maria Maria de la leche yeah yeah Yeah. did you ever uh uh, yeah it's it's a art form found in all those three countries you know where her breast is fully exposed above the high altar Mm -hmm. you know and there's the little naked baby jesus you know that was only a unique few centuries we could get away with that mm. and then we got prudish and we had to cover up her breasts or deny them <laughs> and clothe jesus if at all possible <laughs> oh my gosh this is this is reminding me of a story which has to do with the eucharist so there is a question in here but uh i remember going to a monastery when i was um breastfeeding soren my eldest son and I'm sitting there at this monastery surrounded by all these men in these black mm-hmm, robes. Mm-hmm. And I'm just, I'm feeling so out of place. Oh, I'm bro. nursing my son. I mean, what can you do? You know, they're doing their Gregorian chant. And I'm just like, sorry, guys, <laughs> I got a baby oh. and I got to feed the baby. <laughs> so I'm sitting there and I'm nursing my son. And of course, when you're nursing, you get so hungry. I mean, you're oh, burning you? See, like 800 <laughs> calories a day. So you're just oh, starving you're all the hungry. time. So it came time for the Eucharist, and, and Soren was finally passed out in his milk coma. I put him back in his little car milk seat. Coma. Oh, it's the best. <laughs> and uh, I'm looking at this priest with his sanctimonious breaking of the bread, and all I can think of is, I need to eat that. I need to eat Ooh, that. I need and that. so I had this somewhat <laughs> bodily but also mystical experience of yeah. recognizing like that is my hunger for Christ. Wow. And I'm not going to just be a sweet, beautiful. like meek thing in the face of all of these monks. So I get up there. And I didn't only take a tiny little piece. I broke off a hunk. Oh, you were allowed to break. Oh, oh. and the br- this guy, this monk's looking at me like, what in the <laughs> world? And I, I took that hunk of bread, and as I was eating it, I was like, Christ, I eat you. I know this sounds yeah, weird, right? But it was like this desire. It was That's this permission. Beautiful. And I had the impression, not like words spoken, but the impression of you are already within me don't you see you are you are already in my belly mm. that kind of reciprocity lovely, of lovely. beingness yeah uh, anyway you're no, describing mary not. as nursing jesus <laughs> in the altar brought that story <laughs> but do you have any experiential moments like that with yeah, the Eucharist? yeah oh, a lot over my whole lifetime yeah a lot ah mm. uh, where Thinking stops. It really is contemplative. And I've often wondered if that isn't why the Eucharistic churches seem to produce more contemplatives. Mm -hmm. Because the Eucharist is made to order, to silence the mind, and to move it to the body knowing level. Yeah. So, yeah, it's wonderful. I I can't say it happens at every Mass. Mm -hmm. Too often because I'm the highly visible minister and performing all the functions i let my role get in the way of the intimate Mm. encounter Mm. yeah kind of going with that theme richard in chapter 10 on you write about uh how if we sacrifice reality in the elements 
we end up sacrificing the same reality in ourselves. Mm. And that was the one, one of those kind of gut punch lines for me. And uh, in light of what you just shared um, with the, in the Eucharist, can you further unpack that quote? What does that mean if we sacrifice reality and the elements that we end up sacrificing reality in ourselves? Well, it goes back to my overused line, how you do anything is how you do everything. <laughs> uh, and if this is just a symbol, well, it's not really Jesus. It's just uh, pointing to Jesus or a memorial meal is what a lot of groups like to use. Then you, you're able to say the whole thing about theosis. Uh, the the transformation of human nature into the, the divine nature. But because we were weak on that, you can see how, uh, you know, we needed to do it in the Eucharist. So we did in the Catholic world. Yes, it's truly fully human and fully divine Jesus. Uh, but we never made that transfer back to the human person. We overemphasized the bread. Um, we didn't recognize, you know, in, even in canon law, we had a, a line, sacramenta pro popolo. The sacraments are not ends in themselves. They're for the people. Mm -hmm. They're for the sake of transforming human beings. We have tended to worship the sacraments in the Catholic world, you know. Maybe you did the same with baptism in your churches, you know, yeah. It became a magical proof of something, you know, instead of, well, is this really drowning people into the mystery of Christ? Mm. Uh, no, it's just they got baptized and therefore they got saved. Uh, yeah, so I would hold to that, that if we can dismiss it easily in the brain, if it isn't possible there, then maybe it isn't possible here. Mm. Mm -hmm. Maybe the two can't be put together divinity and humanity, matter and spirit. So for me, as you've heard me say too many times, it's one continuum from, from the first incarnation in creation to the personal incarnation in Jesus, to the body of Christ, uh, to animals and to bread and wine. Mm -hmm. it just, it's all on one line. Yeah. This kind of sacramental view of seeing Christ in everything and in every aspect of reality can change for us how we look at dying, mm. suffering, or loss. Um, it gives us kind of a new understanding, I suppose, and I think I'm um, grieving the loss of my grandfather right now. He just oh. passed last weekend, mm. and I was grateful to visit him one last time. There was something very tender about in hospice, barely able to get words out. Mm. His bodiliness at that stage mm. of, of dying was very luminous. Mm. And so I, I don't know, I'm, I'm grateful to this perspective that can shift what otherwise is culturally looked at as this sad, awful thing. I don't know, there is Christ in that too, mm -hmm. in, the, in the dying. I wonder if you could share your own thoughts about yeah. that. You know, I... I see Christ as the principle of universal life. I see Jesus, and don't hear this in a negative way, as the principle of necessary death. And then when we say we believe in Jesus Christ, we're trusting both movements. 
and the first includes the second. Life includes death. Mm -hmm. uh, once you can make that transfer, in fact, I got two emails in the last few days because these were my daily meditations last week on death and resurrection. People, just that phrase that death is a part of life, just that phrase blew some people away. Mm. I think where Christianity malformed its own message was framing it in terms of reward and punishment, mm. uh, winners and losers, retributive justice. And that's the gospel most of us were given. Once you get that, then death is a threat from God. Death is a punishment from God. And I dare say, most Catholics seem to think of it. You've heard our Hail Mary, which we read, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Now and at the hour of our death, amen. Mm -hmm. What's this great fear of death? You're praying all your life to endure the moment of tragic death. Uh, it's really a lack of preaching of the gospel. Mm -hmm. uh, that death and resurrection, we call it the mystery of faith. Christ has died, Christ is also risen and will come again and again in that form. Mm -hmm. That's the mantra of, of faith found in the earliest Eucharistic liturgies. Huh? that the Eucharist was proclaiming this as the mystery of faith, life and death are one. Uh, death is not the end of life, but the changing of life. Mm -hmm. As we even say in our Catholic funeral liturgy, it's officially there in the text. Life is not ended, but merely changed. Uh, but I don't think the priest who reads those words even often was trained to believe that. Mm -hmm. He thought it was ended, and even worse, ending with threats of punishment for every bad thing you ever did. Mm. <laughs> what a loss, what a terrible loss. It just wasn't good news for the world that mm. gave history hope. And if this book does anything, I just hope it's giving a bit of hope to those who are ready for it in the midst of a very cynical world. Mm. Uh, because we grew up you're probably too young, but you've heard of the late great planet Earth, uh -huh. Hal Lindsey. How many books was that? Six or Million. seven? Mil oh, oh, he sold millions. millions. Yeah, yeah. Sold millions, yeah. But he preached the gospel of Armageddon, Rapture, Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah. I mean, you want to talk about heresy. That is missing the major point that you're giving a tragic end to history. Yes, tragedy in the middle. Once you make the ending tragedy, mm. except for the few of us who are going to be raptured. <laughs> Fingers crossed. You've, you've got a very despairing storyline. You don't have good news for the world. Mm. If it's all going to end in a whimper, mm. uh, is that the line? And not a bang? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, my. It's uh it's symbolic of our fear of materiality, though. Really, very good. That split that continues to exist. I'm thinking of that that old hymn, like "I'll fly away." You know, it's like <laughs> I'm just gonna leave this. Life. I'm just gonna get out of here. But it 
it's also evident in our cultural fear of aging. You know, I think about like, you know, AI, artificial intelligence, and how much people are obsessing over wellness and no, anti-aging. No. And, you know, I think that it shows us how uncomfortable we are no. with physicality as a whole. And uh, I feel the way you describe that in, the, in this chapter, this is my body, the bodiliness, the sacramental aspect of that really shifts that whole fear yeah, I hope so yeah and that's what i believe christianity was meant to do i heard a song don't want to pick on k love but yeah i do turn them out because sometimes i find inspiring songs while i'm driving <laughs> take this world just give me jesus did mm. you hear that mm. it's a real popular take you can take this world just give me jesus there it is it's in the 21st century mm a popular song by a young person and sung with great enthusiasm. Take this damn or He doesn't say damn, but that's the energy of, yeah. I just want my private Jesus. Mm. Wow. And unembodied Jesus, because mm. this world and Jesus are the same thing. So if you don't like the world, you don't really like the Christ, mm. you see. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But they weren't told that, I know. But thank you for hearing it so well. Yeah. We're still in infant Christianity. Yeah. After 2,000 years, we're just beginning to get the massive revolutionary implications of the gospel mm -hmm. and the incarnation. Go ahead. Paul. I'm, I'm just so glad you said that because I think naming it as kind of infant Christianity or young Christianity yeah. allows us to grow into this sense of materiality. Yeah. yeah. And, um, shift the view of that dualistic split of death is the, is the end and that fear which seems to be uh, the driving force behind so much of spirituality and why one makes choices about uh, based on religion is to get that that ticket to heaven once you get to judgment day in your deathbed or whatever it may be so how do you how do you imagine us moving into a more incarnate feminine incarnation uh, as, a, as a people following the way of Jesus? I'm sure, given the different temperaments and personalities, there's going to be different starting points for different people. I do think in general, women have a head start here. So it's good you put just their fact of uh, uh, menstruation, labor, those two especially, which a young woman already experiences. She experiences the continuation of life through bleeding and through suffering. It's all body, 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 body. It's just even, uh, uh, I guess you women count the days when you're... Uh, yes, Richard. <laughs> that is a thing <laughs> that we women do. <laughs> But, the you know, rhythm. I, There's a rhythm to it. Though. I hear what you're saying. It's the rhythm of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I never think of that. I can ignore my body. Do you know when they discovered what they now think is the cave of John the Baptist in Israel just about ten years ago? Uh, they realized it became a shrine where people came uh, to baptize people. And the archaeological study there's 27 steps into the drowning pool. Wow. Exactly. They said the male had to be taught what the woman 
learned naturally. Uh, More or less, 27 days is the magic number, you know. And that, that this was often used in, in feminine rituals, the magic of 27. Mm-hmm. But the male, 27 doesn't mean anything, you know. Right. And isn't that 27 steps into the drowning pool of John the Baptist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think this was the question you asked. What did you ask? Uh, did I ask? Oh, I was asking about um, <laughs> kind of moving into that mature Christianity oh, yeah. where materiality uh, mm-hmm. at the cellular level really yeah, kind of I becomes said, alive and emboldened. We'll have different ways. The yeah. woman has a head start. Uh, I suppose people who have had healthy, intimate sexual experience. I don't mean just having sex. You know that. I I mean where there's been encounter, Mm. where there's been reverence, where there's been mutuality, uh, intimacy. I think they will have a head start because they know that this wasn't just dirty sex. Mm. Like I remember old-time Catholics used to say, why was it a mortal sin the day before we got married, and the day after we get married, it's virtuous. <laughs> <laughs> and they said, you just can't make that switch. Yeah. It's dirty and sinful on Thursday, but Sunday it's sanctity. <laughs> so when you was totally immersed, and I know individuals from confession, who it took them 30 years to get beyond that, that it's still dirty, their embodied self. Mm-hmm. So they weren't prepared to have an intimate mutual give and receive respectful encounter so i think they'll have a head start uh often people and i've seen this in hospitals uh handicapped people children who've already had a disability real young who just have had operations already before they're three can you imagine oh they have a certain respect for physicality. Like, I'm ashamed to say, I, I give a lot of blood anymore because of all the stuff I'm going through. And every time, I still wince when they take my blood. There's no pain whatsoever, really. But I do not like a needle being stuck in me. <laughs> and I remember my mother, she wouldn't even... Just put her arm out. She didn't, didn't uh. think twice about it, you know. And I've seen children that way. I've seen them even on TV, you know, uh, St. Jude and Memphis, all these little kids who are filled with needles. And they have a head start, too, that the physical is almost their first experience of life. Mm. Their physical body being handicapped, limited, made fun of, weak, dying, all those things. Those of us who are just healthy might not learn that. I have to admit, I, until my older age now, I took my body for granted most of my life. Uh, And part of it was I was never into athletic sports, so I didn't need to, you know, strengthen my body or look muscular. That was never any interest to me. (laughs) Maybe it would have been better if it was. But I And then becoming a celibate so young, I was able to just live a disembodied life in great part. Mm. So I had to learn it through nature, through animals, through friends, through normal physical touch. I hope that's not, but what I'm saying is we're going to come to embodiment in different ways. Yeah. Yeah. But those who get it, 
in a tender, nurturing way, have a huge head start. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And those of us, even if you've lived too much in competitive sports, where it, my body is simply a machine that can win over others, just being embodied is not the message. Because yeah. if my body is a machine to dominate over other people, to just win the Olympics, in your own way, you could be disembodied. Why? Because you have an awakened soul and spirit. Mm. And body without soul and spirit is equally problematic. Mm -hmm. uh, in fact, it's lust instead of love. Mm. We even created a word for it. Mm. And it's embodiment uh, without soul. Mm. No. It makes me think of the growing edge of contemplation right now, which seems to be reclaiming uh, contemplative prayer as a bodily as a physical thing you know yes. when we do our our sits Sit. or whether we do drumming or whether we are um doing a labyrinth walk whatever it is these practices at least for me have helped me reclaim sensation as a spiritual practice and that seems to be a growing edge for us right now i think in the yeah. contemplative world i think you're right yeah and uh did you enjoy that quote in there? I, I used to hear it a lot. It's a sin to smoke while you're praying. No. <laughs> it's a sin to smoke while you're praying. But if you pray while you're smoking, that's a virtue. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know how to put the two together. <laughs> We, the priest used to tell us that. No, you may not smoke while you're praying. <laughs> but you may pray while you're smoking. <laughs> oh, God. What was my point there? Uh, just The growing edge of contemplation, is, physicality. Yeah, uniting us to physicality. Yeah. So we would have no trouble saying, well, of course we can smoke while we're praying. Mm -hmm. You understand? Mm -hmm. Or dance while we're praying. Or... Uh, Make play. love or write yes, music yes. or paint. Uh, or... Because it's a much higher integrated level to be able mm -hmm. to talk that way. Mm -hmm. So the fact that we're discovering drumming and dancing is, is just a, a great advance. I think I also say in the book how when I came out here to New Mexico in 1969 and worked with the Acoma Indians, how I just kept discovering how Catholic they were, if I can use that word, before we ever came. The sprinkling of corn pollen instead mm -hmm. of holy water, the building of altars in the desert, and little prayer bundles they'd make where they'd leave their prayers. Uh, the, uh, the bows to nature and the gesturing were just like our body, a way of a sign of the cross that Catholics make. They had embodied prayer and the big feast days more than anything else to this day are dancing mm. dancing for god and if you've gone to them you know that if they do it right and most of them do i go ever so often uh they do not make eye contact all the time they're dancing mm. the eyes are cast out you're not doing it for the gringos who are watching you mm. <laughs> you're doing it for god mm. that beautiful so those are all kind of things that should be a part of good liturgy mm -hmm. And the native peoples often had them already. 
As we wrap up here, I want to ask you, where have you experienced the feminine incarnation of Christ this week? This week? Uh, well, you know, just last night, <laughs> you know, I told you I watched the Nature yeah. Channel. <laughs> well, there was a whole show on reptiles. Mm. And it pointed out the reptiles are not like mammals where the... Uh, mother feeds the infant in the whole mammalian world. And then they said, but there's one great exception. A certain species of crocodile, and they showed it at great length, you know, uh, goes off to a secret place, buries all of its eggs in warm, rotting uh, foliage to keep the eggs warm. She stands guard over that for three months if any other animal comes near it, she goes chasing after them. Then, waiting at the end of three months, when they start coming out, she takes each one in her mouth and rushes to the water to keep it safe there. And sometimes there's like 40, 40 little alligators, oh you know. Gosh. And she's going back and forth so earnestly, putting them in one little corner of the pond. They all just stay there. And when she gets them all together, then she guards them for two months in the pond. It's the only reptile that cares about their young. And it's this one species of alligator or crocodile. Can't remember which one. But it was just, it brought me to tears, this this vicious looking ugly animal that we think of how she cared at great cost to herself they said she would sooner defend them than eat wow. during that period isn't that beautiful how can that not be the love of god mm -hmm. what else is that it's the same divine flow but yeah that was just last night so i'm glad you asked me mm -hmm. <laughs> and i got to tell the story Thank you, Richard. Yeah, thanks sure. for taking the time to mm -hmm. share with us today. Yes, thanks, Richard. You're welcome. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to hear more about these ideas as part of an online community, consider participating in the live webcast of our spring conference, March 28th through the 31st. For details and to register, visit cac.org events. One more thing before we go. We want to hear from you. Bree and I are having a blast being in conversation with Richard, and we would love to hear what questions are arising for you as you listen to this podcast or read the book. So if you have a burning question related to the themes of the universal Christ that just won't leave you alone, head over to cac.org podcast and follow the instructions there to submit your question. After this season is over, we'll sift through the submissions, pour a glass of something tasty, ask Richard your questions, and then share his responses with all of you. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? 
The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.